Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Hebrew Bible. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Others will sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Hebrew Bible, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. This is episode nine of season three of the third hour podcast. Any dream will do. <laughs> this we week har- we're covering Genesis 42 through 50. Should we harmonize? <laughs> any dream will. Any dream will. Any dream will do. Not even acknowledging. I, I uh, just know that I couldn't hit the harmony. <laughs> so, like, I can sing if I practice it a lot of times first. Oh, how nice to not have to do a melody. So wait, you dropped out of band, going to choir, and this is what you have to show for it? Yep. Oh, oh, oh. What was her name? No. Oh. No? Oh. <laughs> it was more like the broader access. <laughs> yeah, it was a smart choice. Smart choice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm your host, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's Andrew. <laughs> I, I feel like we might be setting the wrong tone for today. Oh no, this is going to be fantastic. I'm so excited about today. But what I'm most excited for is your synopsis. Oh, awesome. Although there might be, there was less material for... For snarking? Yeah. Which I really enjoy. <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, so, dear listener, we have left our characters in a famine. So... Ten of Jacob's eleven remaining sons travel to Egypt to buy corn. Administrator Joseph recognizes them. They assume I apparently he's dead, so don't recognize him. Um, Administrator Joseph recognizes them and decides to accuse them of being spies. They say they're not, but Joseph demands proof. Um, They're allowed to take their grain home, but they have to leave behind one brother. And if they want more grain and the return of their imprisoned brother, they have to bring back Benjamin as the proof. They get home, tell Jacob the terms, and (laughs) Jacob refuses because he has no qualms about playing favorites. That's Benjamin now. Um, At least (laughs) Jacob holds to this until hunger wins out. The brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin and are welcomed suspiciously into Joseph's house. When it's time to go, Joseph has his magical divining cup hidden in Benjamin's luggage, then accuses him of theft. Instead of threatening murder, which is, you know, progress, Joseph says he'll keep Benjamin as a servant and the others can go. Judah refuses because it will kill their father if they go home without the baby, and something about this exchange is enough to make up for prior attempted murder, and Joseph tells them who he is. Pharaoh is happy that Joseph's family finally turned up and offers them a chunk of Egypt to move into. Um, We have a little segue here about Administrator Joseph doing kind of what sounds like exploiting the famine to purchase all individually owned land and livestock and making it either the property of the crown or of Jacob's family, which (laughs) feels like it must be a later insertion to justify other things. Asterisk, I'm really hoping. Um, Either way, Jacob gets ready to die and starts handing out blessings. Because this family has not had enough drama, Jacob knowingly gives the firstborn blessing to Ephraim, uh, who is Jacob's, 
who is Joseph's second born. He then scolds Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, gives Judah and Joseph the best blessings, obviously, um, and everyone else gets blessings, with air quotes, um, that after the last few weeks, we can assume are actually reverse historical explanations for other things that are happening happening presently at the time of writing. Yep. And Andrew's nodding. <laughs> yep. Um, Jacob dies, and Joseph travels to Canaan to bury him. Now, the narrative suggests that at no time in the last 17 years that they've all been living in Egypt on Joseph's dime did the brothers apologize to Joseph, because now that their dad isn't there, they all get real twitchy. Um, Joseph forgives them again, and apparently nothing interesting happens for the rest of his life, because the next thing we get is Joseph living a long time and dying. Thus the story and Genesis ends. We're finishing Genesis. And the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's how long it took. It's been a good year. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll be back. For in, Exodus. In, in theory. <laughs> 2023. Exodus. <laughs> so, impressions? Do you have any impressions? I accidentally rewatched the musical twice this week. Nice. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Parts kept triggering songs, and then I would watch that song, which turned into the whole musical, and then it would be like, oh, I haven't finished my reading. <laughs> That's okay. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> it really is. There were large chunks of the out of the synopsis where I just caught myself typing lyrics and like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> This made me feel old, kind of for the same reason that uh, apparently this is actually like this past week's uh, "Come Follow Me" lesson. Yeah, hmm. not that I'd know that. <laughs> and um, and so I saw like on Facebook some people I was friends with in high school. I saw it too, singing to their kids and their kids being just like utterly humiliated because they're <laughs> teenagers. <laughs> and I was like. What? <laughs> How are there teenager offspring of people I went to high school with? Yeah. Because time is linear. And we get married young as a people. Well, I, some of us do. I got married less you than a year young. after <laughs> my mission and I don't have a teenager. <laughs> I was going to say, you were married pretty young. Yeah. My impression was just that I, this is a fantastic story. It's so well written. I, I love like Joseph's emotions. They're always like bursting out and so much of it just evokes a lot of feeling and it's got some fun twists and turns and I just really enjoyed it this week. The, the, and I was looking for doublets. I think I even saw a couple mm -hmm. of them this time. Well, and that like to be able to pick through and go like, oh, well that only makes sense if it came from that one account that Andrew read last time. And that only makes sense if it came from the other account. And then I couldn't remember the letters, but I noticed them. J and E. Yeah. But I couldn't remember which one was oh, which yeah. one. Yeah. But like, otherwise that doesn't make sense. And I appreciate that Joseph spent a large chunk of his life in slavery and he turned out the most, most emotionally healthy member of this family that we've come across. You know, he does cry easily. I hope that it was like good emotion crying and it's not just like we're hearing about these and he ugly cries a lot. Like what's wrong if he ugly cries a lot? Well, it might mean that he's not as he didn't turn out 
emotionally balanced all the time. Uh, he he didn't <laughs> attempt to murder any of his brothers. So well, he sure takes a lot of slaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure seems like he's compensating something for something at work. <laughs> like his coworkers are like, man, I wish you would leave home at home. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about that part. That's another, that's, it's funny. That's another impression, I guess, that it's just amazing how often reading these stories, I'm like, how did I forget about this? <laughs> Where Joseph, like, wait, did he just buy all the people in Egypt? Like, what is going on here? And why? So I'm, I'm excited we, to talk about that. Why are we doing this? You, know, you, Taylor, you bring up doublets. This is, you know, one of the arguments against doublets as a, as a method of reading this text is that maybe an author is saying something twice for emphasis. Well, this story has a great example of a place where it's probably there, there is something twice for emphasis. And when we get there, we can look at that and show why it's maybe different from most of the doublets we've looked at. So you're, that's another impression. You're just going to leave us hanging like that until we get there. Yeah. Oh, because well, I better jump into the text. Then. I, I've been accused of, of jumping ahead <laughs> by maybe people. <laughs> who are here. <laughs> Should we jump into the text? People are hungry. So <laughs> I got a kick out of the way that this just sounds like a dad thing to say. Why do you keep looking at one another? <laughs> Why are y'all just sitting there? <laughs> uh, and he sends them to Egypt to buy food. I, I feel like it's going to be interesting. I mean, the story is so well known to us, right? I mean, they get there, Joseph recognizes them, like you said. Um, what do we want to say about this first journey? I think everyone kind of under knows the story, but is there anything you want to say about this first journey? Anything we should point out? Well, we're going to see, uh, as we've pointed out, since since we're talking about E and J, um, so 42 is E because Reuben is kind of the hero. Yeah. Right? So it's Reuben is the one who comes and he kind of chews out the other brothers in uh, 22 where he says, did I not tell you not to wrong the boy, but you would not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Um, we're going to see Reuben be um, heroic at the, here at the end of 42, um, when Reuben is going to be the one who says to his dad, you know, I'll bring Benjamin. And if you don't, if I don't bring back Benjamin, you can kill my children, which is <laughs> a heck of an oath. <laughs> um, yeah. I, these people are real serious with their oaths. I, I, the more I read their oaths, the more I gel with Jesus being like, you know, just cool it on all those. Just yes or no. Yeah, you don't need to kill your kids. Maybe that should have been one of my impressions that it, it may be a problem that as I get towards the end of Genesis child killing, I'm just like, oh, okay. And I keep reading. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's normal in this book. Um, and then 43 transitions to Jay when when Judah right. is going to be the champion. Mm -hmm. He makes basically the same promise, right. except it's, you know, he's not as murdery. <laughs> A little less death. Yeah. Now, you read us the two different passages last time mm -hmm. from Jay and E. And Jay made Reuben the hero. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. E makes e, Reuben. E yep. Oh, J. Okay, we'll go with J, Judah. Okay. Yeah, J is Judah, yeah. and it's the kingdom of yeah. Judah. Yeah. So E makes Reuben the hero, and if I recall correctly, J was the one that made it sound like everybody thought he was dead. Yes. Okay. Whereas E, like, there's some plausible deniability on Reuben's part. 
Yes, because like Ruin went to salvage him, but he'd already been sold, and yeah. everybody, all the other brothers knew he'd been sold. So right. there's extra culpability on everyone else. And then in J, it was that they put him in the pit, and then someone else was all, hey, random boy in a pit. And then he was gone, and they all thought he was dead. You're you're right that they, there's very different senses of who's culpable. I think J is that they were broadly culpable, or wasn't it? I, I don't remember. remember. I'd have to go get my sheet. And, and like, because I can't, because I found it interesting that in forty two twenty one, we do have that we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And like, that's, it's a really nice visual there. And like the level of guilt of you chucked your brother in a pit and then your brother's like crying, probably ugly crying and like begging to, for you to get him out and that you walked away. Yeah. Like that. Nice job, writer. Good job there. Well, yeah. And, and then the whole scene with Joseph, secretly understanding them yeah. i mean that's another brilliant little twist that he's using an interpreter as if he doesn't speak their language but of course he does yeah well and then after and, all this time he's still fully fully good in his language in his birth language yeah well you would expect him to certainly understand chatter between his brothers i would think you would hope yeah it seems like was there was there an, am i right to see also a doublet in the discovery of the money i mean it seems like they discovered yeah. the money twice yep mm-hmm. that's often considered a doublet yeah um, I mean, this is full of, du- there are so many doublets yeah. in a story you can often tell. So the money is discovered twice, two different sons swear an oath and then like never reference each other. Yeah. Um, like it's never like Ruben's like, I pledge I'll bring him back. And Ruben's like, Hey jerk, I said, I, you know? <laughs> like there's no, there's no entanglement between those narratives. They're just yeah. next to each other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're going to, that's a very good catch. I just wanted credit for it. No, yeah, you get, you get credit. Good catch. So uh, the other thing that jumps out here is how much they forget about Simeon. It's like poor <laughs> Simeon's in jail. And they go back and they're like, "Dad, we got to bring Benjamin," and he's like, "Nah, I don't want to lose Benjamin." I guess yeah. Simeon's stuck there. Um, but then they're hungry again. So yeah, that's a fascinating piece of the story too. And I guess you could argue that Jacob doesn't know that they're not going to all get lost if they go back or, you know, anyway, there's other ways to read it, but <laughs> given all the favoritism that's been yeah, going that, on, that is, it's hard not to read it that way. That is not the character trait that we've been yeah. presented. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of funny. I, I mean, Jacob is portrayed just so pitiably, you know, when he says, I am the one you have bereaved of children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. <laughs> now you want to take Benjamin and you're just going, no, Simeon's not dead, dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's waiting for us. Yeah. So they go on a second journey. This time Joseph invites them to dinner. And um, I thought it was, I mean, there's all this testing going on, right? There's the explicit testing of like, are you spies? You have to bring Benjamin. He's testing them to see how they're going to take care of Benjamin. We're going to see more of that later. I did feel like it was a little bit of a test that Benjamin got like super special treatment. Yeah. <laughs> like absolutely. How, Just to make him jealous. Yeah. Like how are they going to respond to this favoritism, which is what, which is what caused the whole thing in the first place. Once again, I just love the story. Um, he gets, so what does he get? He gets five times, I think. Yeah. Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. It makes you wonder like if they're thinking the sus, like why is he favoring? Like what? <laughs> What's going through their minds at this point, you know? 
Well, and like, given your set of circumstances that you've accidentally robbed Pharaoh's right hand, that like, was it an accident that we got this money and we had to come back and this is our only source of food that like, how jealous would you have to be to throw a temper tantrum in this dude's house? Yeah. And like, even like if you are jealous, just to be like, it's not worth it. So it's a fight we're going to have on the way home in the car when there are no witnesses. Not right. We're just getting out of this house. Fight on the camel. (laughs) Everybody shut up. Um, another piece of this that jumps out at me is how often Joseph is asking about his father. You know, you mm-hmm. get all these senses of like him probing. And even when they go back to actually their dad's mad, like, why did you tell him all this stuff? You get this sense that he really quizzed them about their family. Mm-hmm. And of course, knowing what you know, you see him worrying about people he loves and misses. And anyway, just full of little nuggets like that. This is one of those rare places where the characters are just so well drawn. Yeah. I just have to echo what you're saying. You're both saying is I, I love the way that Jacob is like, you're going to take my son, you know, are the, are the others not his son? <laughs> yeah. And and when he finally tells them to go back, he's like, okay, do this and this and this. And he gives them all these instructions. Last sentence. Okay. And take your brother. And just the hesitation that he gives them, you know, this, this sense of preparing and he's giving them an inventory to take as a gift for, for Pharaoh's governor. And then, Okay, and take your take your brother. And I, I just love how well drawn it is, um, which leads me to feel a little bit, you know, we've talked about criteria that we can use to kind of gauge uh, whether a story happened or not. One of those criteria is specificity. Um, it just feel these feel like people who might have actually transmitted a story, whereas before you have kind of these mute characters who you know, sometimes they're warlords and sometimes not. Here, everyone has sort of a consistent depth uh, of being to them, which I love in this story. So he gives Benjamin five times what everybody else gets and then plants the, the famous cup. And we've got to pause on the cup here because this is another one of those things that's just like, how did I not notice this? Um, ver, ver, 44 verse 5, is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Does he not indeed use it for divination? Mm-hmm. So there's this, like, it's clearly this, like, magic cup that Joseph uses as a magic cup. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, the text is not at all ambiguous about that. Yeah. Um, which part of me is just like, well, that's fine. I mean, we have magic rocks in our history that well, are unapologetically used as magic rocks, even though we don't like to talk about it that way. Do we want to say anything else about the magic cup? Just that I love it. <laughs> Just that we've ignored it and we're super uncomfortable with it. One thing that's so interesting to me is how that discomfort that you're discussing, it finds its way into all of this midrashim. That that all of these people who are commenting on this text are like, well, it never shows us Joseph used the cup. It's just like he has a cup. He's faking with the cup. Like they can't acknowledge that maybe Joseph does use a cup to do divination that instead, like maybe he's just playing with them. Like this is part of his trickery and it's not that he actually has a divination cup. It's just like, he was like pretending. And, but the thing is, 
is that's one of those that's one of those defenses where you just go, well, why didn't he just say it was like his drinking cup then? Yeah, like there that is a non-essential detail that this is his divination cup. It says he drinks out of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a dual purpose cup. Yeah, <laughs> and all it needs to do be is be valuable. I mean, yeah, they, uh, ostensibly they they could have they they stole it because they wanted money or they stole. I mean, there's a million reasons they could have stolen. It doesn't have. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, and so the, the appearance of this cup likely is indicating that Joseph is using magic. Well, in absolute asterisk with this, because as we've established from my angry noises, I don't know enough about this as much as I would like. But, and this might be wrong, but according to the small amount of research that I was able to make any sense of this week, that water and cup divination was a egyptian form of divination so that this isn't like he's not and as territorial restricted gods as we learned with rachel but that so that he has so it implies that he has so fully immersed himself in the egyptian culture and worship that like his approach to whichever god he's worshiping now which is its own fun little asterisk is through their means of divination and so like like how how do you cross that line is like does god give you the talent and like are we having a c.s lewis you're still worshiping Aslan, even though you're calling him Tash situation, or I don't know, but I love it. I love it so much. I love all the things about it, Taylor. None of that was useful. I'm sorry, listener, but it's just fascinating. So here's, here's where I think it might be fast, like somewhat useful for us to understand this text. Way to bring it home. <laughs> um, is remember that this story is really weirdly heretical. And it's heretical at all these different points. Mm -hmm. Like when Joseph looks up and his first vision shows like the stars, like worshiping his star, that's heresy. Because the stars are meant to be representations of gods in this time period. Mm. So even that is a little like out there. And then Joseph is going to claim all of this quality with dreams, except the author wants you to remember it's not him, it's God. Right. And then... Here he is in Egypt. Who does he marry? He marries the daughter of a priest of On. Mm-hmm. His new name contains Egyptian ideograms, including religious ones like the Ankh. Um, here he seems to be practicing Egyptian divination. There's a good chance that as far as, as far as this text is concerned, he actually, it might be burying and kind of glossing over the fact that one of their major figures may have been an On worshiper. And actually, that would fit really nicely in with the criterion of embarrassment, which is, you know, we've talked about why would anyone report that Jesus was crucified? Well, that makes it more likely that it happened, yeah. right? That That's embarrassing. That's a humiliating execution reserved for insurrectionists and thieves. That's bad. And so when, they, when that's the story that gets told about Jesus, it's more likely to be true. Um, same, the same thing is sort of happening here. That you, for all intents and purposes, it seems like Joseph kind of has gone native. And even to the point where we're going to see what happens to his descendants, but only two of his descendants are adopted into Israel. The other ones, it's understood, are just going to kind of stay his. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that they are Egyptian now? Um, and it seems like the story kind of goes to lengths to not comment on it. You know, things that everywhere else in Genesis, you have to go and marry from the right tribe. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, someone married from the wrong tribe, and it's all this hell that rains down yeah, on them. Drama. Yeah, drama. Yeah. And for Joseph, nope. Well, it seems like two of these major tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, which we really are going to have to talk about, um, <laughs> it seems like a lot of this is kind of getting swept under the rug for their sake, um, which really might be a hint that this is transmitting something pretty faithfully, hmm. um, that there might be some oral record that <laughs> that Ephraim and Manasseh really did have a, an extensive tie to some other kingdom and came from what might be considered heretical, but as major portions of the Northern kingdom, that's maybe not something that's politically expedient for us to dwell on. Just kind of like with Reuben, right? Reuben's an enormous tribe. Maybe he gets an out. Maybe Mm -hmm. he was the good big brother who didn't know that all this stuff was happening. Um, so, so you're very right to notice these weird textures running through this story because they might indicate actually that the story is being a little more honest with us. Yeah. It's really fascinating. It's, it's fascinating to think about. It's fascinating to, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to try to put ourselves in their heads a little bit, but it also helps me realize how impossible that is. And I think it was a couple times ago we were talking about how much you would love to like know about Keturah, Abraham's last wife. Yeah. You know, and some of these things we just can't, but it would be so fascinating to understand what Joseph's conception of God was. Anyway, it'd be really fascinating. So the brothers passed the test. Yeah, apparently. The hero is mostly Judah this time, right? I didn't see Reuben. I was kind of looking. Did I, I don't think I missed it, right? It's, the hero's just Judah this time. Yeah, it seems like the J account is the major account here. Yeah. and. Um, so uh, here's another random um, impression that I just noticed from your reading. Is one thing that really changes these stories in the King James to the NRSV is the use of the word servant versus the word slave. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's way harsher in the NRSV. Every time it's servant in the King James, it's slave in the NRSV, pretty much throughout. Um, on 4433, I have, I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord. Do you have slave for both servant and bondman? Now, therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in the in place of the boy. So first servant and slave. Um, so they managed to talk. So, so they, so Judah agrees to take the blame. And this means that they've passed the test. And then again, Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Um, So like Andrew was saying, these are some serious cries here. Mm -hmm. And Um, here's one of those places, actually, here's the doublet that is likely not a doublet. It's that he reveals himself twice. But you'll notice that when we've talked about doublets, um, usually they're spaced out just a little bit. Usually their stories have other details, like different namings. For instance, here we've seen is, is the father named Jacob or Israel mm-hmm. and different sources prefer different names. Well, here I am. Joseph is my father alive, but his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And he reintroduces himself. This is not a doublet. Yeah. Because 
this this seems like actual emphasis. It gives a reason why they don't answer his question. Usually with doublets, it's an entire fragment of a story, Mm -hmm. whereas here you can tell it's partial. And that's one of those really useful ways that this, so this passage, some people, when they're a little amateurs will identify this as a doublet. No, it's a, it's a fool's doublet. It looks like a doublet, but it does serve a actual story purpose. Yeah. And in this case, it's such an intuitive story purpose because yeah. you can totally imagine the brothers being like, so what now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. Um, and I mean, the forgiveness comes instantly. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Um, so he reveals himself and he says, yeah, you got to get my father. Mm-hmm. I'm going to settle you down in this good land of Goshen. Do we know where Goshen is? Is that like a, I kind of don't want to get into that this week. Um, next week, when we introduce Exodus, we're going to have to talk pretty frankly about, uh, <laughs> some stuff yeah i like Um, how you front loaded that with like hey this story might be might be true (laughs) you know you know we've we've seen like we've cast a lot of doubt on especially the isaac story yeah because it really seems like he got sacrificed (laughs) um there are a lot of indications that this story might might have something to it yeah uh, in contrast with the isaac story so lots of weeping kissing sends the brothers back to get jacob and uh, Pharaoh's in on it. Pharaoh's happy to give the land as well. <laughs> that Pharaoh's like, great, your weird family finally turned up. That's so nice. <laughs> and, that, and it, that's not a plot hole at all. <laughs> and there's this random, let's see, where is it? Um, there's this random thing about how the Egyptians don't like sheep. Yes. Am I jumping ahead of myself? No, that, I mean, that's the settling, right? Yeah, that, so I guess that's after Jacob has arrived. So maybe before we get there, is it, what do we want to say about Israel's journey? I mean, he comes, um, he has this experience again in, in Beersheba, um, where God sends him along, tells him he's going to go with him. Where we have the ter- ter- territorial limitation of the God of Israel, and he has yep. to like seek approval before he goes into someone else's territory. Yeah. And the, the God of Israel, whatever his name in the, in the narrative in the narrative <laughs> but that he has to get approval from his god and that his god will not abandon him he's not breaking any compact before he goes into egypt into some other god's territory it's all fascinating yeah so he gets permission <laughs> and he goes with a big long list right. of people <laughs> he goes with a big long list of people big long and I thought that was, it was kind of funny reading, like, not including not including the wives of his sons, because why would they count? Yeah. <laughs> they were 66 persons in all. The children of Joseph were born to him in Egypt were two. I liked the contrast there. Yep. Joseph's not doing so well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe. Um, Joseph's kids didn't try to murder each other, so... Um, so is there anything to, I mean, I, I assume in that list, there's probably some explaining of where peoples are coming from, like we usually see in those big long lists, but maybe it's not worth highlighting again. You know, I've heard that this is likely an insertion, um, like it might be an ancestor list 
and the original, I mean, the original story here doesn't seem like it would give this list. Yeah. And then it's out of place. Right. And then suddenly it's, it like just blasts you with a bunch of nouns. Um, you know, I, so I, I could see that being the case, especially because it's not going to be like, we're going to see a bunch of names with the blessing mm-hmm. in a little bit, but it makes sense why all those names are given their names. And we'll talk yeah. about that. Yeah. This just seems like, well, we know all these families are important, so we're just going to stick them all in here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I've heard that many people consider that an insertion, but I don't I don't know any specifics there. Well, and then is like 32 on and our random bit about sheep and cattle and skiving people out of their land its own little fun insertion well so it it seems like okay the thing with the egyptians not liking shepherds yeah so that's for, that's chapter 46 verse uh and, and it creates an entire 34. yeah at the end of 46 yeah. and it continues on through 47 there's not a break there mm-hmm. um there's kind of this weird and then like joseph kind of like tells his brothers to be deceptive yeah. And then they aren't and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because the pharaoh actually has flocks anyway. And so it seems like maybe this is that the authors hang up. <laughs> um that maybe they associate the Egyptians with not liking hmm. shepherds because the it's true the the Egyptians are a settled people so they don't like no they they tend to consider nomads inferior but it's not like they particularly how, hate them. How would cattle be less nomadic than sheep? So you can, c- cattle um, are often fed things that you have grow, domesticated and grown. Okay. So like you would grow a hay, you would grow uh-huh. grass and feed it to a cow. So it indicates like Joseph's little thing is like, don't tell them you're a shepherd, tell them you manage livestock, okay. which would mean that you're like, you, you're a stable person. You, you harvest hay, you move hay, you give hay to animals, you shovel manure. You aren't someone who like travels around and ranges and many cultures might consider you parasitic because you temporarily come in and promise that they can marry your sister. And then you turns out that's not your sister. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, It kind of seems like these nomads would have a bad re- reputation as opposed to something like, uh, like goats and sheep, which are very free range. Okay. And so I think that that's maybe the distinction it's trying to make. Um, as we've as we've said before, remember that there's just a weird hang-up and a conflict between nomad, different types of nomad. Are we talking about like true nomad, pastoral nomad, or settled people? Mm-hmm. And it just seems like that theme is continuing here. Even if to Pharaoh, it kind of seems like a non-starter. Like he doesn't seem to matter to him. Yeah. The farmer and the cowman should be friends. So then Joseph blesses Pharaoh, which is, or Jake, excuse me, Jacob blesses Pharaoh, which I think is extra interesting in the context of what we've just been describing. I mean, it does like there's this moment of like, Jacob's God is still superior. Is is this a, is this a kind of, I mean, it seems like this, that is putting this into the Texas idea that Pharaoh, who is the chief priest, right? I mean, he's the most important religious figure in Egyptian culture, I think. Yes. Is being blessed by Jacob. In fact, Pharaoh is the avatar of God. Right. Which is, uh, you know, that's big. Yeah. 
I mean, okay, to put it in context, and I don't mean to be blasphemous or flippant, that in a way makes him Jesus. I see. Right? Yeah. Like the sense of this is his vessel. The incarnation, on Earth. yeah. Yeah. And, and so this seems to be P. Oh, okay. So we're not just having like a really friendly, sure. I'll, t- I'll take your blessing, old man. Yeah. It seems like this is absolutely a later insertion. Another clue is that it says Joseph settled his father and his brothers and granted them a holding in the land of Egypt in the best part of the land, in the land of Ramses. So it says that instead verse of... Verse 11. Yeah, in verse 11 in 47, it says that instead of Goshen. Mm-hmm. Which that is, uh, that's the phrasing for Goshen that's going to be more associated with P. And so it seems like, why didn't it just say Goshen again? Well, it says the P word. It uses the P word for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. right adjacent to it, it has kind of another clue that it's P. Mm-hmm. So that seems like an insertion. Yeah. And it would make sense. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you'd think Pharaoh would be like, get your hands off. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, your dad's weird. <laughs> yeah, go back to Goshen. So then we get to the uh, Joseph buying the land of Egypt. So the people run out of money, and Joseph says, okay, well, give me your flocks, and I'll give you food. So they do that. And then they run out of flocks. Okay. And cattle, I guess. It's not just flocks. It's cattle. And then he says, that they, so they run out. Okay, give me your land. Okay, so they give him the land. And then at the end, when they don't have any of that left, he said to the people, now that I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. So he buys them. He made slaves of them, it says in verse 21, from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. Maybe that's because that was his (laughs) father-in-law. Now, read me your verse 20 and your verse 21. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them. And the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Oh, that is a stark translation difference. Oh, so, what, is, what is it saying? King James? So in King James 20 and 21, and Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man in his field because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Oh, yeah, that's super different. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what in the crap you two were talking about earlier. And that is a big translation difference. There's a lot of ways to read this. So I'll propose two options, okay? First of all, no one knows. Pretty much every scholar agrees this passage is very odd. Yes. The, so the first way to read it is that it's not meant to be negative. But let's be clear about what Joseph is doing here. He is reducing an enormous amount of the population to serfhood. Yeah. Okay? This, doesn't, this is different from them being a house slave or like a building slave. They are agricultural serfs. This means that they are going to stay on the land and work it, and a percentage of their work will go to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. It also means that they may no longer move. The serfs will be bought, sold, and traded with the land. They are considered part of the land. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they are not free people who, if like your farm doesn't work, you can leave. You may, you must stay there. Also, it kind of gives us the sense of a resettlement program. Okay, 
Now, it might be that this, this is trying that if we, if we kind of jettison our modern values where we're like, surfhood is bad <laughs> because it is bad, <laughs> that maybe it's trying to show us that Joseph was quite brilliant. That the way that he works with these people who are starving is that he does provide for their survival, but also for the good of Pharaoh's household, which would make him a good steward kind of in both directions. That's one way that many people have read it. Uh Here's another way. Is this this way better? This is a way that I think you'll like better. Oh, good. Because I'm real uncomfortable. This might be creating an irony, a suitable irony to the enslavement of the Israelites. Oh, yeah, that's better. That, That because they came in and reduced the local population to slaves, that when they themselves are enslaved, it is a it is an appropriate and ironic reversal of the violence they enacted first. This section opens with, um, depending on where you want to put the break. So like, let's say that instead of putting the break at 13, where people traditionally put it, let's say you move it up just two verses to 11. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and granted them a holding in the land of Egypt in the best part of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had instructed. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in the land, and now it goes into him. We're going to sell sell our grain at an inflated price. When you can't buy anything because there's no money, you give us your cattle. When the next year that's gone, you sell us yourself and your land. If you, if you move that break up, and remember that anytime you see a break, these are artificial things. These are, these are people making decisions. If you change where that break is, it, become, it changes from potentially Joseph being a good administrator to, oh, there's now a new ruling class. It's the Israelites. They're being taken care of while locals are being enslaved. It becomes a story about oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, so just moving a break, two verses, can completely transform that story. So I tend to have more that reading, that this is meant to be a dramatic reversal. Um, not to say, of course, anyone deserves slavery, but we have seen that this text is so rich with reversals and will continue through Exodus to be rich in reversals. Yeah, I mean, just like Jacob, the trickster, gets tricked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and as we will see later, what does... What does bad Pharaoh do? He kills all the firstborn. So what does God do back to him? Kills all the firstborn. This is, there's reversals everywhere. This might be another one of them. It just might be a little too subtle compared to some of the other very obvious ones. So an audience might miss it. And we feel like this is an original part of the text, not like a later insertion, like some other things to justify stuff that's historically going on at the time of writing. You know, I have heard it argued that um, that this feel like linguistically, and this is not something I've investigated myself because I'm still learning Hebrew. <laughs> I have heard that this reads like J um, up through 27, where it kind of turns into P, um, which is the, the death of Jacob, mm-hmm. kind of the end of his life as he approaches it. So it seems like this is an original source. Oh. Or at least as original as yeah. anything in J. <laughs> yeah. right? E is older usually than J. And so it, it seems it has as much veracity as anything in J. Um, yeah. That is super fascinating. So w- would that, though, 
weird. Wouldn't that undermine the the? I guess it's Jay though, but it seems like the priest wouldn't be very happy with that reading, right? Because they want Joseph to be a hero, right? Not yeah. not to deserve, and they don't want the children of Israel to deserve sort of get their comeuppance in slavery. They want it to be unjust. I would think is that accurate? Well, remember that whoever P is, P seems. I mean, think of think of a modern librarian whose instinct is very much tilted toward preservation yeah. over censorship. Yeah. Um, whoever P is, we've seen that P is willing to leave some pretty naughty passages in there. Yeah. Um, even even contradictory creation accounts yeah. and you know all over the place. So it may be that whoever P is, and we know P is active because P seems to be writing at the end of the chapter, that P opts to stitch it into the scroll yeah. instead of cut it out. It's so fascinating because it provides an entirely different reading of all the stuff we talked about, Joseph being an Egyptian and all. I mean, it's almost could be that the text is intentionally setting him up as an Egyptian to then this is the next logical move that he, as someone who has lost his proper heritage and become Egyptian does is enslave everybody. Yeah. But anyway, that's obviously not a comfortable modern reading. You know, I I think that there is a reading that you could have where, you know, if you fill in blanks, um, you could absolutely read Joseph as a villain. Yeah. Um, Especially in light of this text, he promotes his family, you know, uh, despite his good stewardship and appeal to Pharaoh, he kind of stops seeming to focus all that much on like, pharaoh's stuff for the good of the people yeah um he focuses on he basically uses a natural disaster to further his ends um it it feels kind of like a character shift from like the really good administrator who's been super loyal to his owners and whatnot for all this stretch of time and like you would assume someone who's so capable of planning and taking this preparatory grain would have built into the system to not ruin the entire local economy. So it feels like a character shift. And maybe it could be, Um, you know, so one thing that I get out of this is um, even anciently, um, for instance, in Egypt where, where whether they have food or not depends on, the flooding of the Nile. Mm-hmm. They knew that. And actually Egypt was famous for grain storage and actually had like a, a, a grain draft mm-hmm. in which you would always be giving them grain. And in years of famine, they would actually give you free grain. It actually had subsidized for citizens and servants and slaves and serfs, a grain dole. Um, so th- this is kind of known Um, Even since ancient times, it is exceptionally rare for there to be a famine that is not a man-made disaster. That, of course, patterns change. And there, of course, there's disasters. But if you look at the history of the past, something like two or three hundred years of of world history, there has not been a single famine that needed to kill anyone. And yet famines keep killing enormous amounts of people. Why is that? Well, it's because the people who are in charge use that famine to say withhold food from people they don't like or raise prices or give a better portion to the people they favor. So the the same is true very likely here. We know that the same is going to be true in, in Rome and Greece and Egypt and other times. The same thing seems to be happening here. 
um, that ancient humans were just as smart as us. <laughs> there was no genetic difference. <laughs> they were they were modern in terms of brain power. They knew that this could happen. They knew how to prepare for it, and they knew how to take advantage of it just as well as we do. Um, it seems like that's what's happening here. And if you are an Egyptian citizen, you might not like that. Yeah. That might help explain Exodus. I feel like one of my impressions, as I was reading this part, not even knowing some of the context you just gave, I I couldn't help but think, like, why do we pick some parts of Genesis to say it has to be this way? And then just ignore other parts. I mean, I'm just imagining what would happen in conservative religions the world over if, like, we insisted that this was the model minimum of 20% taxes. <laughs> like, like, and, and in some ways that feels as arbitrary to me as picking like the curse of ham right. or the curse of Cain. Mm-hmm. We just pick this one story. And, and in some ways it's very much like we're, what we're describing. We just know how to take advantage of it. Right. We pick one story that backs up the, the cultural construct that we like. And then we say, well, look, here it is in the Bible. It has to be this way. Just there's so many other stories we could do that with. For, for that matter, we could say Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh were probably half African, right? Like, here, here's a complete contradiction to this other story we're going to use, and and other Christians are going to use to argue against like integration of races and against giving the priesthood um, to people of African descent. Anyway, I just. I think we've hit on this a lot, but I, I, as I was reading this story in particular, I thought to myself, what if we had made this one a story about the way things have to be? Well, and, and a wonderful example is in 48 where we do that because um, so in, in the modern church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I feel like everyone just says it that way now. Like you got to get it out in modern uh, Brighamite Mormonism. Um, where this is this is the way that we do the notion of grafting into the Abrahamic covenant. Who gets which blessing and what does it mean? Well, it's white people are the house of Ephraim and most brown people are the house of Manasseh. And how does that relate to what occurs right here? Yeah, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> right, isn't it? <laughs> Is that true? I didn't actually know that. Is it is it generally true that most people from like South America and stuff are are given the tribe of Manasseh? Is that yep. I didn't actually mm-hmm. know that. Yep, most white people are Ephraim, and most people from South American Polynesia are Manasseh. Yeah. And and why is that? And I think we're actually going to see why. And guess what? It's the same thing it always is when you pull back the curtain. It's white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> Look, it, was, it wasn't a ghost. It did have a sheet over its head. <laughs> wow. Oh. Wow. <laughs> you can just take that out or not take that out. It's your own call. <laughs> it was too good of a joke. <laughs> it, was, it was real good. I really appreciate it, but also... Oh. That's fascinating, especially, well, anyway. Well, maybe we should detail what happens yeah, so that our audience knows why we're. So we, we get Ephraim and Manasseh get the blessing and, and Jacob crosses his hands because Joseph has placed them such that they'll be in the right place. Apparently the, the firstborn gets the right hand and the 
and the not firstborn gets the, the lesser person <laughs> gets the left hand. Correct, yes. And so he crosses his hands and uh, Joseph tries to stop him, but Jacob says, no, no, this is the right way. This is how it's supposed to be. Um, and he gives them blessings. And they do actually both get legitimate blessings. At least there's that. Um, people will say, God make you like Ephraim and, and like Manasseh. I thought that was interesting. They'll be, they'll be so liked that that'll be like a blessing. Oh, if you could just be like Ephraim and Manasseh, that would be like a positive thing to say. Um, but one of them gets a better blessing. But one of them gets a better blessing. Yeah. Right. And that's clear in verse um, 19. So when, jo- when Joseph tries to correct him, his father refused and said, I know my son, I know he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So there's a clear sense that, and this kind of this will be used as a sort of patriarchalism, where where you're going to say it's not that we don't think brown people are good; it's just that we're better. Hmm. So instead of the you know instead of going full curse of Ham, you're going blessing of better blessing of Ephraim versus lesser blessing of Manasseh, where you're not just saying like, Oh, you're subhuman, you're awful tainted blood. You're saying you're just not blessed as much as white folk. Yeah. Isn't that fun? No, no, it's just so not surprising though, too. I I mean, that's just kind of been my impression throughout that, that scripture is so easily twisted to be used in those ways. And yet, a careful reading of that scripture so often undermines those very arguments. I mean, just the fact that, again, Joseph's sons are Egyptian, as far as I can tell, um, undermines so many of the other arguments. So, so, so I do feel like scripture has the solution to it within it, but it's just so easily ignored, it feels like. You know, it's it, this is one of those interesting places where there is an enormous body of work that was done in a, at a certain point to prove that the Egyptians of today are not the same as the ancient Egyptians, that those Egyptians were white, which therefore allows some of these lost tribes to be white. And therefore maybe you can be from a white lost tribe and the, the pure white Egyptians were wiped out by bad black or Brown Egyptians. That is nonsense. We know that's not true. We can see pigmentation in very old, clearly shows that there were brown people in Egypt. Stop lying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and like, if it is necessary to you that that is important, that like at no point did you stop and go, huh, why is this so important to me? Why? There might be a there might be a problem here in my yeah. own in my own like this is me. <laughs> Am I the baddie? <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, I mean, I'm, I, I'm going to beat this dead horse one more time, but that's what I love about this text. Like, none of the good guys are always good guys. You just have to confront this, like the heroes of Israel doing horrible things, and I just feel like that should. That should cause us to ask that question. Like, am I the baddie? <laughs> I just feel like that's what that's what we should get out of this. But instead, we force these square pegs into round holes, and then people have faith crises later. Well, I wonder and, why. <laughs> yeah. And to run with not the opposite, but Katie Corner, maybe, that 
you are the baddie. We're all the baddie. Yeah. Everybody sometimes is the baddie. And yet, despite everybody sometimes being the baddie, all of these people did good things and like ended up presumably as the story comes down to us. And I am uncomfortable saying otherwise because cultural conditioning ended up (laughs) on the right side of God. And so like, even you can sometimes be the baddie and make yourself square with God. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, that seems like the whole promise of atonement and, yeah. you know, at least I hope so. Yeah. I know I've been the baddie in some people's life stories. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we all have. I think that's part of the point. So then we move to the blessing, air quotes, blessing. I like yeah. that, air yeah. quotes, of the rest of Jacob's sons, the first of which are just cursed. Um, I mean, Reuben gets, it sounds nice at first. First roots of my vigor, excelling in rank and excelling in power. Unstable as water, you shall no longer excel. <laughs> and then now, you slept with my concubine, so I'm ticked. I mean, that's it's quite a blessing. Yeah, still ticked. Well, and I know that it's obviously weighted to like the one kingdom that likes Reuben, whichever kingdom that was, and whichever letter that was who's telling that story, but. I really appreciate like how you pointed out the background character arc that Ruben goes through and it ties in nicely with this baddie business that Ruben made a pretty sizable mistake in <laughs> sleeping with his father's concubine. Although as we've seen, men sleeping around is Yeah. You know. Well and like there, <laughs> yeah, it is. There, you know, we have our own little <laughs> It's fine. Unless it's your dad's concubine, your brother's mom is its own little fun twistiness that's a little bit worse. It's the the property issue again. That's what's so uncomfortable about it. But and then someone sleeps with his son. Is it Reuben who sleeps with his son's wife? Judah? Judah who sleeps with his two sons? Yeah. So it's all the the whole thing's timey-wimey, (laughs) squishy-wushy. But... That, like, I appreciate Ruben's little character arc, that he makes a sizable mistake in the beginning, and that the character arc we were given is that he just keeps trying, and, like, he just keeps fumbling it, but he just keeps trying to be the better guy, and he ends up getting no reward for trying to be the better guy, but he just keeps trying. (laughs) (laughs) His dad never gets over it. I mean, who among us has not had a sexual liaison with the concubine of just forgive and forget? It's just, these, these, these dramas are so ridiculous. It's some pretty big talk from Jacob that he treated three of his wives like crap. Yeah. Such crap for so long. Like, mm, class houses, my friends. There's... um. So as as you kind of uh, intuited earlier, Amanda, this is these are all very political statements. Mm-hmm. They indicate from the J perspective specifically a lot about what happens to each of these houses. Um, I, I pay attention when you talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this this indicates uh, this might help us date it. 
I mean, you could argue that it's real prophecy. Of course, there's reasons why in scholarship we never accept a prophecy. That reason is pretty much because because we read Harry Potter and we learned our lesson. Yeah, we learned there's always a there's always a tooth in a prophecy and <laughs> always bites. Um, the the real reason is if we accept one prophecy, we have to accept all prophecies mm-hmm. from all texts, all peoples everywhere. So we approach every prof- prophecy with the exact same amount of skepticism, mm-hmm. and it turns out that hey, guess what? They almost never turn out to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, we do see like Reuben. Think of this from the J perspective that Reuben is this big northern uh, tribe, and then it collapses and gets absorbed by J, by Judah. So, well, that makes sense. Yeah, um, unstable as water. Simeon and Levi. Well, neither of them get land because Levi—they're the—they're uh, the, the priests, and Simeon. Well, they just disappeared super fast. I'm trying to figure out how you reconcile the Levites as the priests. And just like their cruelty and their anger that they have no honor in my translation. And like, that's an, that's an interesting little alignment that we've got going there. You know, coming as someone who studied a lot of the middle ages, where if you had a kid who went and killed the wrong person, you'd be like, let's put him in a monastery. Um, (laughs) There's a part of me that finds it very fitting. (laughs) Um, You know, Judah, as we can see here, Judah gets a whole bunch of people's blessings and will always have the scepter. Of course, that's the house of King David. Um, Zebulun. Ah, Zebulun. Well, Zebulun actually uh, made a lot of money trading with the Phoenicians. Mm. So that makes Mm. sense. Mm -hmm. Isaacar is a strong donkey. In real life, they're strong. (laughs) 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 Um, Dan, the judge, they're known as uh, great soldiers. So they kind of get this description. And and this just keeps going, each of these. You're actually describing the character of what they're like in a few hundred years. And to them, many of these prophecies would be nonsensical. That's one of those indications that this is likely, it may date the text. Yeah. So. I'm sorry, I got lost though between judge and soldier. Should I have connected those two things automatically? And it, it goes well with verse 17. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah. it's 17. Yeah. Snake by the roadside of Viper along the path. Yeah. Then we get the big blessing for Joseph. And then Benjamin gets an afterthought. He's no longer the favorite child. No. Poor Benjamin. The real favorite got found. And now Joseph's the favorite. Again. <clears throat> so then uh, Jacob dies and... Um, gets buried by Leah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh, there's this whole Egyptian procession to bury Jacob. Can I point out a plot hole here? <laughs> <laughs> that Pharaoh is so in support of take and I'm t- keep trying to find the verse. Oh, here we go. Um, seven and 50 and went with him, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and the elders of the land of Egypt and all the house of Joseph and his brethren and it's fine. And like everybody that they are allowed to take everybody, including like the whole Egyptian hierarchy back into Canaan to bury Joseph's father. This is how high and awesome Joseph is. However, if Joseph can do this, 
why at no point did Joseph roam into Canaan with a bunch of Egyptian soldiers and go looking for his dad? <laughs> why did we just wait in Egypt for his dad to come? For his brothers to his murderous brothers to turn up. <laughs> Why the second you had power, did you not go storming in to save your brother and tell your dad, my save Benjamin, and tell your dad they're all murderous weasels? <laughs> Come live in Egypt with me. It does seem like a thing he would do. Yeah. Especially- were they were they still nomadic enough that he might not have known where they were? Is that a possible answer to that question? <laughs> If you have 11 remaining sons who all procreate relatively at the rate at which you procreate, this is a fairly large chunk of people who are also apparently well known enough for continuing to play the, that's not my wife, it's my sister game. They're like, I feel like there'd be a red flag following you around everywhere that everyone, oh, that's where those weasels are. Yeah, I think, you know, if you have an army... Usually that means you have a lot of scouts. Yeah. Like you could, like, I feel like you could, one thing is this area that they live in is tiny compared to like, it's just very small. We're not, we're not roaming around the intermountain West here. No, no, it's very small over there. Yeah. No, it's a fair question. This area seems grazed out. Let's move to the next area. Yeah. It's a fair question, especially because of how anxious he is about asking for his father once mm-hmm. his brothers get there. Like, where was all that anxiety before? Well, like, yeah. how stoked Pharaoh was that his weird family finally turned up. That, like, <laughs> yeah. you get the feeling, like, you want me to send a guy? <laughs> and you you have the divining cup. Is this not a question you ask? Maybe the redactor took out the part where the brothers were always, like, fighting off Egyptian assassins. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting part of the story. Oh, like, I like that way of sort of resolving it. <laughs> so then we wrap up with the brothers panicking. Uh-huh. Jacob's gone. Apparently they, were, they thought that was the only reason Joseph was being nice to them. Um, but he reassures them. Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. I don't love that. I don't love that reasoning. Do you want to elaborate? I just, you did a horrible thing to me, but God turned it into a good thing. So the horrible thing you did is okay. Like I feel like that would be the, the modern phraseology of that. And I don't, I don't love that. I think this one of the things this shows for me is that even in ancient times, people sure were fine putting things at God's feet instead of taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. We love to do that. <laughs> That's certainly true. I, I actually really like this passage, though. Cool. So I, I can you elaborate? Yes, of course. So I, I've been thinking about my impressions of Genesis overall, actually, mm-hmm. since we're wrapping up Genesis, and. I feel like this is kind of, I mean, there's all this miserable stuff happening, right? Yes. And and I feel like this is almost like the author saying what they hope can come of it. Like, there's all this stuff. It's harmful. Maybe God can make good things with it. And I completely agree with what you're saying that we ha- we can't, we have to be careful 
not to flip that around and say God intended us to do bad stuff. Like there's a difference between like, like the candide idea that everything that happens is good and right. And that God intended it that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And the new Testament idea that God can take even bad things and work them in such a way that they work together for our good. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that's the best thing that could have happened. It just means that God is able to turn even bad things to our experience and to our, and to our use. And so I, I just feel like this, <clears throat> this, Verse could be read, read like you're saying, and I completely agree with you also, Andrew, that that's all often how we read it. But I just have this hope that like in all this mess that is Genesis and all this mess that is my life and all this mess that is mortality, um, even when we're screwing up, God can work it to our good. God can intend it for our good. And, and like that's a lot of the hope that I get out of Genesis is that in spite of all the messiness, God does something good with it. Um, so it feels like a nice capstone on the, on the book for me. I totally agree with everything you just said. I feel like we might be talking about, you're talking in the broad perspective and I am thinking, which I agree with your broad perspective that all these things, yeah, for thy good. Um, for me, I'm thinking of the narrow perspective and like, it's what 17 years they've been together in Egypt is what it was that, and that this is still how terrible the relationship is. And this is still how terrible their apology was. And you've, we have now established that Joseph has given you all the grain to such the point that he has basically betrayed Pharaoh and bankrupted the country. Like, this is how much... That was one possible reading. (laughs) And yet, that was the better possible reading. Um, Like, that's how far he has bent over backwards for you. But this is how broken the relationship still is. And it's like in that narrow perspective that Joseph has twisted himself around to the point that... And so, like, thinking on the microcosmic scale yeah and the interpersonal relationship that kind of it kind of gives me flashbacks to leah and how like leah needed a female friend to be like no no girl you you burying him more children will make him not less of a weasel (laughs) (laughs) then someone in her life needed to have shaker and have that conversation with i feel like someone in joseph's life needed to be like no like they're still your family and you can still love it but like this is a a terrible interpersonal standard to set and so on like the individual scale of oh it's okay that they were a weasel because god turn it into a good thing and like i feel like I hear individuals saying that on an individual way and like, no, they were, they were bad to you. Them like God making fruitful things of it does not change the fact that they were bad. Right. It makes God good despite the awfulness. Right. Or you seeing goodness despite the awfulness. And that may give you strength to forgive, but it shouldn't necessarily cause you to trust or be in a relationship that's unhealthy or, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, that's where I always break down with those kind of theological statements. It's just that 
I'm not sure I see the utility of them when the broad sweep of human history is to use that theology to fail to act for anyone's good, because God must have intended some people to be enslaved for their good, and God must have intended some people be exterminated for their good, and God must have intended the people who were on the fringes of your church to be there. That's good. And over and over, that does not spark us to do good. That sparks us to do nothing. Yeah, and I agree, but I'll tell you what the utility is for me. It's that I, because of all that history, find myself terrified of action. Then I'll make the wrong action. And so I, I think having hope that God can work through me as I am not making excuses for myself, but as I'm trying my best, having hope that God can do good action, even when I might make mistakes, helps me to try to right those wrongs instead of saying silent because I'm worried that I'm wrong. But it doesn't have to be used that way by other people. Yeah, I got you. I got you. And then Joseph died. (laughs) 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 And that concludes episode nine of the third hour podcast, as well as the book of Genesis. We did it. Join us next week when we will dive into Exodus. Oh, I'm tired already. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. This was the third hour, a Latter-day Saint homesteady podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at the thirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.